Bandwidth for this week in photography is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is brought to you by Drobo. Find out how you can get your own Drobo at drobo.com slash twip. This week on the show, movie gear for film cameras. Is the LX3 skewed? And can you use an iPhone as a light meter? Right here on This Week in Photography, number 53. Hey everyone! See now, now you, you can guess who's who's. Uh, He's back. I'm back. I'm back. This is Alex, <laughs> and uh, you know, and uh, we are. Uh, this is Twip. See, Thank Scott you. tells me. Scott tells me I have to tell you uh, what you're listening to, um, even though I just told you at the beginning of the show that you were listening to this week in photography. So, but, I forgot you do the pre-roll. I forgot. But I, but I've been told that I should remind you to make sure because some of, some of our listeners are evidently somewhat senile. Um, and by the way, I get hundreds of emails thanks to you that start with, hey, everybody. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's going to be a fad. It's going to be cool. You know, it's, uh, well, maybe not. Uh, the, we, will uh, have, we will have for sure the Hey Everybody t-shirts at Macworld. <laughs> uh, Scott Bourne, obviously, uh, coming in from uh, Gig Haba. I, I and there's still not a single person in town that has a Boston accent, but keep it up. <laughs> it just sounds like when you say it, it sounds like you want to say. We are on the west, a- the west coast, my friend. The west coast. I know, I know. I don't, I don't have, Seattle. I don't have an accent for that. That's so why I'm just using the one that I have. That's because the- we have no accent. Oh, and there you go. Now, Ron Brinkman's here, but I don't know where he's, he's calling me from. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm see, not, I was going to let you guess and uh, see if you get. If a I was going to guess, I would guess Redondo Beach. <laughs> be wrong. <laughs> where where are you calling in from, Ron? I'm in Seattle. Oh, oh he's in Seattle on a, a very high high rise, looking yep. out over the over over the scene, surveying the city, looking down <laughs> on everybody. And also here, uh, who will be jumping in uh, now and again uh, throughout this podcast, is Aaron Mailer. Hey, Aaron. Hey, guys. Hey. So Aaron is our uh, our studious uh, producer, and he, he's the one that actually makes us sound like we know what we're talking about. And uh, and so he uh, will be jumping in and out uh, during the Q&A. We're doing a Q&A session today, so uh, there's gonna be, it's going to be all questions all day. Well, maybe a little news. Uh, but all before- questions and hopefully some answers. No, no, no answers. We're just going to list the questions off and ponder them for like short, you know, brief times. We'll just think. This is the Zen edition of This Week in <laughs> Everyone just, everyone just simply meditate. We're just simply going to meditate on the questions. We're not going to actually answer them because, of course, once you answer them, it no longer exists. Yeah. <laughs> Scott's we like, want to yeah. keep them in the ether. <laughs> so we also we, we are continuing the linking contest to twipphoto.com. Scott, can you fill people in? Yeah, we're running out of time. This is the 24th, I think, as we record this. And on the 31st, we're going to check the referral logs and look at everybody who's linked to twipphoto.com. And one of those people will be randomly picked by a computer to win about $1,000 worth of prizes. Now, don't take your leak down after the first because we're going we're gonna to give away something else for the next quarter. And we'll announce that prize next week. But uh, we'll, we'll be picking the winner and posting it at twipphoto.com sometime around the first, second, or third. So 
check that out. And and I do want to just quickly mention, although it's not on the script, we are in the middle of the Aperture Nature Photography Workshop Contest number two for a free trip to Yosemite National Park worth about 3500 bucks. So there's another contest for you. Nice. Uh, nice. We've- We've got uh, in the news, to, we, Photo Plus Expo is happening right now in, in New York City, happening as we record it. I think, I think it will be done. Will it be done by Monday? It'll be, it'll be done by the time the show airs. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but Steve and Fred are not with us because they're there having fun. Well, that's what they, you know, what we call it. Um, and it's got a big, uh, now what is, what is Photo Plus Expo, Scott? I mean, how is it different it, from it Photo Kina or... It used to be called Photo East back in the old days when we had one in L.A. They called Photo West. Now they call it Photo Plus. It's uh, just a big trade show. It's not limited to the trade, although they kind of pretend it is. Anybody can come in. Uh, I just got reports there uh, today from the press office. More than 10,000 people have hit the show floor. It's just a big trade show for photographers. And because it's in New York City where a lot of the you know photo business goes on, they get a lot of bigwigs there. And in the years after Photo Kina, like this year, frankly, it's not as, it's not as uh, exciting to me because all the big news tends to get released at Photo Kina, which was a few weeks ago. And now you're, you know, here you are with another big trade show. But it is the biggest show on the East Coast. And, and it's a well-run show. And there's lots of classes and lots of people who've been guests or or regulars on this show are teaching classes there or doing demos there. So it's fun. You know, I was going to go, but I had to get some medical stuff done this week. And uh, we're going to let um, Fred and Steve give us a report when they get back. Fantastic. And uh, I guess the next one is, the next big one is PMA, right? Yeah, that's the first week of March. And I'm going to be there and I believe you said you were going to go, but yep. we'll have a big we'll have a big presence at PMA because there are going to be some exciting announcements, and I'm trying to work it out that we can do a show while we're there. Oh, that'll be great. Where's, is that in Vegas or where's that? That's at? In Vegas. That's in Vegas, baby. All right. I think Ron needs to be there. Yeah. <laughs> also in the news, Apple releases Aperture 2.1.2. Uh, the primary feature is uh, supposedly uh, printing improvements for books, calendars, etc. Now, Aaron has not had a good experience with this. Aaron, can you fill us in on uh, your uh, your experience with uh, printing from Aperture? Well, to be totally fair about it, um, this is the first book I've printed with Aperture, so I don't want to say this is you know a blanket statement necessarily. But I was a little irritated to have uh, sent in my first book for a test, and uh, about four days afterwards, they did the update. So I just got the book a couple days ago, and i got to say I'm not at all pleased with the quality that I've gotten. And I've uh, heard a lot of other people online echoing exactly the same sentiment. And it seems like it's a service issue. I mean, I I have to say that I've printed out of iPhoto, and we were talking offline uh, about this a couple days ago. And uh, (laughs) the printing quality out of iPhoto, I know, was so good that uh, I uh, didn't – I mean, I just don't – I don't really – as Scott will attest, I don't really have a printer. You know, I just, uh, I sent, I print stuff. I just send it to... He can launch the space shuttle from his desk, but he doesn't have a printer. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I travel a lot. I have a scanner. I have a, a That's scanner. why he has the time to launch the space shuttles, because he's not fighting with his printer. Exactly, exactly. So I just sent it, but, I uh, sent it out, but I've sent books out. I've sent all kinds of other things, and the quality is so good. People ask me, like, where did you, you know, what, how did you do this? You know, and I was like, well, I, I dragged a couple photos in. I said, send. <laughs> You know, I, I know, I mean, when I was working at Apple back before, you know, because I worked on Aperture prior to its release through, you know, the first couple iterations of it. And I know at the time, 
it was absolutely true that Aperture was going through a different fulfillment center. They were using different printers and a different company to do it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's always this talk that was like, oh, well, this is stupid. We need to synchronize it. We need to get everybody onto the good printer. And everybody agreed that that was what should be done. And it sounded like maybe it hasn't quite yet happened yet two years later, So, uh, which is kind of disappointing. I, I played with the very first iteration of Aperture's printing capabilities and also wasn't I wasn't real thrilled with them. I did find them very nice as long as you were sticking with small prints. They were more than acceptable. The bigger you got, like the bigger books, for instance, fell apart. And I determined that part of the problem, which may have been also, as you say, Ron, the, the service bureau they're using, but part of the problem was the compression. What What's going on when you send that stuff out of Aperture? It's basically making a PDF. And they're compressing the heck out of that PDF, and it's so compressed that it falls apart when they decompress it, and therefore you get a negative result. And, so and I think that's what this this uh, improvement, this printing improvement, is actually supposed to address: is that the the data going through the pipeline is maintaining a higher quality. But I'm not convinced that that's all of it, because I think just the printer they were using, at least on the test I did, was not that great. Well, we're we're going to do some tests with the new one and see. I can report back to you on this because um, I'm going to talk to Apple about redoing this book, uh, reimbursement on it, or, or getting a second run at it, and I'll do it with a new version. That'd be great. So we'll have an, you know, an absolute one-to-one comparison before and after. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, and the, uh, I think the thing, the thing that people have to remember is, is that if you put up a 50-page book with lots of big photos and it was uncompressed, it'd probably be one to two gigabytes of, of imagery um, you know, to uh, match those resolutions. And so it has to compress it to some degree, but the question is how far um, is it going to push that? You know, is it gonna and a lot of people are surprised that it's a PDF and they shouldn't be because almost every book that you see at Barnes & Noble or Borders right. has, been, has been made from a PDF these days. That's just how it works. And the quality can be amazing. And and I do think it also has to do with, you know, your images. If you've got a lot of noisy images or a lot of images that are kind of iffy because the shadows are blocked up or whatever, that's going to that's gonna main, make you have a, you know, poor result than if you have well-exposed, well-lit images and with, you know, good contrast ratios, etc. Yeah. Also in the news, uh, Lightroom 2.1 is released along with new DNG profiles. Um, so uh, it, um, it's... <laughs> Supports a lot of new cameras, uh, not the LX3, which we'll talk about here in a second. Or the D90. Or the D90. Um, but, uh, or lot the 5D of, Mark II yet. Or, so it's still, you know, but these take time, and, and, uh, but we've got a lot of new ones in there. Uh, matches, uh, matches code changes in RAW 5.1, improves interaction with CS4. Uh, the new DNG profiles and the DNG profile editor have been updated um, to beta 2. And uh, also for Lightroom is GPS proximity search plugin. Um, this is... Uh, uh, it scans locations of your geocoded in- images and locates other photos in your library taken within proximity of a reference image. So it's easy to find where, you know, not necessarily on date, but when you are at a certain location. And so uh, uh, very, uh, a very interesting um, plug-in there. Also connected to more plugins, um, both for Aperture and Lightroom. Um, version 2.6 of Photo Magico Pro uh, now supports Adobe Lightroom Tube libraries and comes with a plugin for Aperture, enabling photo, photo, photographers to select their photos from within Aperture and to export them directly to Photo Magico. Have you guys used Photo Magico? I love Photo Magico, and I just used this last night. I tested it. How does it I work? Downloaded, I downloaded the new version, hit a button, 
export to Photomagico, open up Photomagico, and there was the entire slideshow ready to go. And the big thing with Photomagico is is that, of course, it, it is it does kind of the it's kind of the Ken Burns on steroids, right? So well, it'll could, do that if you want. It it has all kinds of features. It's probably the most full featured slide program in the world. It's my favorite. And I particularly like this because unfortunately, while you can make wonderful slideshows just in Aperture natively, I love the slideshows you can get out of Aperture natively. They're quite good. The problem is you can't save them and export them. Right. So so with Photomagico, you have that ability. And one of the coolest things, I've made Photomagico a pick over it at MacBreak before because I like it so much. You can export the slideshows, Alex, to people that do not have the program. Right. Right. Yeah, it's it's a really, really uh, you know, must-have if you want to present stuff. And you can, put, stuff. you can put it up on a website too, right? Exactly. Yes. And, and you, you know, they have standalone runtime modules, so you don't, the person doesn't need right. to own Photomagico. Right. And there's, and there's music uh, synchronization kind of stuff. Absolutely. Too. It's, it's, it is very full-featured. But it, the great thing about it is you don't have to be a wizard to figure all that out. There's a bunch of automatic presets you can click, and that'll get you pretty close. And then you can adjust the, the results. And I, I still think it's the best slideshow program out there. And there's plenty of good ones, but this is the one I like. And whether you use it in Lightroom or Aperture, you can now um, you know use that. So uh, definitely, which is a nice thing because now you can work with either program. Right now, we've got some we, we've got uh, some drama here. Drama, <laughs> drama. Okay, uh, the the drama is related to the LX3, something that Scott has here, and uh, and a lot of people have been pretty excited about. Um, but there is an, an article talking about. Uh, um, that that there is some serious barrel distortion issues um, that are showing up in the raw imagery of uh, you know from the LX3. Ron, can you fill people in on this a little bit? Well, I, yeah, I don't. I would. I don't want to characterize the drama as being related to the fact that there is barrel distortion on a, a small compact camera like this with an ultra wide lens. I'm not at all surprised about that. Uh, the interesting stuff to me is the fact that apparently Panasonic made the decision that. Um, all of that barrel distortion is automatically removed, whether you're, you know, you're shooting JPEGs coming out of the camera or even if you're shooting raw photos with uh, using their, what's it called, silky pics or something, their raw converter that ships with the camera. So basically, you, you never see this. Or I think they were, what they were trying to do was make it so that you never actually saw the distortion that was in the original images that came off the sensor. It was all corrected out automatically. Now, of course, you know the people started... Um, there's an open source raw converter called DC Raw out there that somebody did the work to, to figure out how to uh, decode raw images coming off the LX3, and they started seeing that you know the images coming out of that were much different than what you would get going through the Panasonic approved pipeline. And it became obvious that what Panasonic had done is just sort of made the decision for you that they were going to do this these corrections uh, prior to letting you see anything, even in the raw workflow. And for me, that's the bigger issue and something that I find you know, a little bit annoying. I think it's mostly Panasonic being afraid to show what the real thing is back there. They sort of thought they could get away with it, and then they kind of got caught with their hands in the cookie jar. I, I just want to put forth a slightly different point of view. I, I think, unfortunately, we live in an age where we're willing to ascribe a negative uh, you know, point of view to anything we find out about. I don't know that Panasonic wanted to hide anything. They might have just wanted 
to correct it for people, figuring they, they would prefer not to have barrel distortion. I would, in the raw file myself, like to have that choice because sometimes I think the barrel distortion is cool. But I, I, or, I don't or just know. a non-issue, you know. I mean, if you're if you're shooting landscapes, uh, you know, a lot of times you wouldn't even be able to tell that there was something like that going on. I don't, you know, I, I don't like I said, I don't think it was particularly devious. I think it was just sort of. I mean, I would be curious to see, you know, when they they say it's a twenty-four millimeter lens equivalent, you know, is that before or after the uh, barrel distortion correction? Because if you look at, you know, the two, th- you know, side by side of what comes straight out of the camera versus what you get out of the JPEGs, there's significant cropping that has to happen to deal with that D, you know, D fisheye kind of thing. So I don't even. I, I'm curious what that twenty-four millimeter really would be if you tried to measure it. Well, I, I the, what I did to compare was I looked at a picture I shot with the G10 at. 28 their their conversion to 28 millimeters and the lx3 is definitely wider so even with the conversion i'm guessing it's a 24 but uh, i mean part of what's going on here is this is a consumer camera and Mm -hmm. and because you've always got the willingness by the internet mob to you know assume there's a conspiracy there oh these are terrible lenses that barrel distort and 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 you know people have to be realistic. You're spending f- less than five hundred dollars for a compact camera. I, I've spent two thousand dollars for wide-angle lenses that still have barrel distortion. You're going to have barrel distortion when you go wide. That's just a fact of life. So that's that's your earlier comment was right on, Ron. It's not so much that there's some barrel distortion in a sub five hundred dollar camera that goes to twenty four. It's more that there there needs to be a little more openness, probably, so there doesn't appear to be any. Uh, you know, attempt by Panasonic to hide this. There's nothing they need to hide. They should just say, hey, we've automatically corrected for the barrel distortion for you, and if you want it, here's the button to uncorrect it. Well, and, and uh, the- I would be, I'd be curious, too, Scott, if you if you just, uh, you know, what, is what you see in your viewfinder the, the same thing that comes out in the JPEG file when you look at it a second later, i.e., you know, is the live feedback you're getting there with or without the barrel distortion? Are they doing, you know, they have enough... You don't see processing. the barrel. You don't see the barrel distortion uh, in the viewfinder, but then again, my eyes aren't so good that I can see every pixel on the back of one of those things. But I do know that since I, I'm not going to use their raw converter, I've been waiting for either you know ACR or aperture to work, and I've just been shooting JPEGs, and I haven't had any barrel distortion in my JPEGs, and the JPEGs just to be clear are so good that I printed a 13 by 19 JPEG from an ISO 80 shot just yesterday that absolutely blew my mind. And uh, I couldn't believe that it came off a sub $500 compact, which I did shoot at 24 and there was no barrel distortion in the JPEG. So I don't know. This this is either a big deal to people or it's not. I do think Panasonic should now that this has all come out, they should address it. And I'm going to contact them and see if I can get an official comment from them. Yeah, that one of the things I think is is that this might be what's delaying uh, one of the things that came up in this article uh, this is from uh, SeriousCompacts.com is that it might be this might be delaying the support of the raw version in Photoshop and Aperture and so I on and so forth. I think that's just because, pure speculation because right. all the other cameras that came out at the same time aren't supported either. There's no basis in fact for that statement. It's a guess. Okay, there you but go. I, it, it, the question would be, you know, when you when they do implement this in those packages, will they include, I mean, Aperture doesn't have any sort of that's controls correct. right now for doing, you know, D-barrel distortion. So does that mean that what's going to come out of Aperture will... You know, if you're shooting raw, you will always have something with barrel distortion. If you're shooting ultra wide on there, 
Right. That, could again, be a factor. that might mean the need for another plugin in Aperture that deals with that, or maybe they'll provide some sort of information that lets people deal with it separately. I know that, for instance, in uh, Capture NX2, you can you can adjust for barrel distortion and vignetting and things like that. I don't know if Aperture might want to add that feature someday if you're listening, Joe Shore and company. Now, uh, to, to well, you know, it's it's. I just have to say that you know we have we had very good accurate uh, lens, you know, undistortion algorithms in Shake. So those algorithms are all sitting around Apple, and I tried to get those into Aperture when I was working on it, and I was sort of poo pooed about how important it was. And you know, maybe one of these days they'll go dust those off and put them in there. Maybe they'll finally <laughs> listen to me here. Damn it! So yeah. <laughs> now to to further the the uh, the drama here, Scott. Uh, has a Mac Pro, a MacBook Pro, with a glossy screen, and there's I been do. lots of talk and lots of emails about the glossy screen. Scott, what do you? What have you been hearing? Well, you know, it's there. What? There are people. There are people who are making decisions that the glossy screen can't work, and in typical internet forum fashion, they've never seen it. Um, I, I do think this is one of the best screens I've ever seen on a computer, but it is glossy, and under certain lighting conditions, as a photographer, that can be problematic. But because it's on a little 15-inch laptop, all you got to do is turn your body a couple inches this way or that way. And, yeah, you see glare when the computer's off, no doubt about it. But as soon as the computer's on, that thing is so bright, that LED screen is so bright, that you do not see any glare in my experience. Now, would I use this as my sole editing monitor? No, I wouldn't. Um, but, but, I have- but, but glossier matte, you wouldn't. Exactly. That's right. the point. Yeah. I, I'm going to be using a 24-inch glossy cinema display as soon as they get, ship them. So that's not what bothers me. You control the light, and and it's fine. And and these are gorgeous, gorgeous screens. This is the this is the finest laptop I've ever owned, and I've owned a lot of them. Um, the only thing that I don't like about the thing is getting used to the buttonless trackpad because I kind of lean my hands on the the computer sometimes and all of a sudden the cursor's going crazy. I don't know what it's doing or why I'm doing it. It's because I'm accidentally touching something near the trackpad. Other, other than the, the buttonless trackpad, I've had no trouble with it. And I, that's just me getting used to it. That's a user error. But I think it's fine. And I'll tell you this, it is fast. It boots up fast. It loads uh, both Photoshop and Aperture very quickly. The new Photoshop is optimized to take advantage of you know the graphics processing chip. It works, and as does Aperture in my stopwatch test, which is not exactly scientific because my stopwatch was manufactured in 1952. Uh, it's about 40% faster for both Lightroom and Aperture, which is not one of those kinds of things that you, know, you can only measure with a stopwatch. You see it with your naked eye. It is just faster. So everything's fast. And uh, it's a, it's a great computer, in my opinion, for photographers. If you don't like glossy screens, there's a sticker. I just do what Alex is doing. Get a sticker, yeah. and as soon as you get that sticker and you're happy with it, Alex, we'll talk about it here on the show and let everybody know. But I do urge people to actually look at this screen and look at it with a photograph on it, not while it's all, don't look at the screen while the computer's off. Look at it with a photograph on it, with the brightness turned up high, and tell me. You know, if you don't think that's a gorgeous screen, I do think yeah. that you know, for somebody like you, Alex, it does more critical work. It would be problematic, and if it was going to be your only screen, it could be well, a problem. I think my like, biggest problem is I'm just on, I'm in an airport a lot. You know, and it's yeah, just there's just a lot good. of lot of stuff that's reflecting coming back, and that's the thing I'm mostly concerned about. And you can't get yeah, away from it in an airport. Yeah, but I would also say, I mean, I, I have the glossy screen on my. I just have a regular MacBook, so I, and I bought it back. You know, when I there was the option to get the two. You know, to to choose between glossy or matte, and I just went to the store and looked at them side by side. And you know, the thing is, 
I, I felt that the glossy screen is, is a little punchier. It's a little contrastier because it doesn't have anything in between the, the pixels and you. And, and the other thing is, uh, you know, all you're doing is you're trading off sort of a sharp reflection for a much more dulled down reflection in a lot of ways, which is going to tend to wash out the image, but maybe you're not going to quite understand that you're seeing a reflection there. So I'm not... You know, I was very hesitant when I did it, and I went back and forth, and I looked at them in the store, and finally I decided, and for me, it's not been an issue. You, you can tilt the monitor, you know, a little bit and and get rid of any really direct, gnarly reflections, and uh, I, I'm a, a believer now. I have decided that when I get mine, I'm going to spend two weeks before I put it on. I'm just going to, you know, just allow myself to kind of be with it and see if I can if I can deal with the reflections. If I can, then I might leave it off. After all my kvitzing. Now, this is <laughs> our last bit of news is the craziest thing you're going to see uh, as a photographer this week. Craziest. <laughs> craziest. This was on uh, Prolos. This is Stu Mashowitz's uh, uh, blog and um, Prolos.com. And uh, this is uh, Red Rock Micro. So now Red Rock Micro... Uh, they make uh, these 35 millimeter uh, upgrades for uh, little digital cameras. So if you have an HV20 or, or a smaller camera or even an EX1 or, or, or all these video cameras, they have small chips, which means they have a very large uh, depth of field, which means that it just doesn't look like film. And so to make it look like film, Red Rock Micro has this thing called a sp- spinning glass. And, they, and you can, um, but, they, but on top of that, on, on top of doing that, they also just make a lot of other things like mat boxes and, and uh, focus pools and you know, all kinds of things that you can, uh, I'm sorry, or fo- follow focus. Uh, uh, they have all these little things that really make it feel like a film camera. So what they did is they, <laughs> they have a setup now for the, uh, the Canon 5D Mark II, okay? And it's basically a, it's got a 15 millimeter support system. These are the bars that go through it. Follow focus. Um, and, uh, and what a follow focus does is, you know how you grab onto your focus and you, and you turn it to, to kind of do a manual focus. Well, what this does is it puts it kind of out to the side and you, and you can actually mark little areas. There's a little white area that you actually take a, you know, a, preferably a non-permanent pen <laughs> and you mark like I want to be at this focus at this point in time and this focus somewhere else and that way you don't have to try to figure it out while you're watching it you just turn from one to the other um, so and then if, a lot of times you'll actually have a you know on a, on a high-end set yeah. or something there's a separate guy doing following you know, doing the focus while somebody else is operating the camera and sometimes they'll be he'll be doing the focus or they'll even have what's called a whip which is a <laughs> it's a it's a focus that that literally pops into that so the guy can actually stand further away from the uh, you know from the camera and uh, and make those adjustments and so there's also a swingway mat box, uh, shoulder mount, um, and a support cage, you know, to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, for, with a handle and everything else. Anyway, this thing, you, you just have to go see it. So, I mean, you just, we'll, we'll put a link in the red, in, in the show notes. It's redrockmicro.com slash redrock underscore DSL DSLR. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, you see those Honda Civics that have, you know, had a, a Chevy V8 <laughs> dropped into them, and, uh, you know, yeah. giant whims. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like taking it. It's totally like that. And, and you just look at it and you're just what was funny was is Stu had put something up in his in his blog earlier, like a week ago or two joke. weeks ago as a joke of this is what should happen. And of course, now they're selling it. Now, I don't know what the price is that it's going to be. It's going to go on sale only a few days after uh, this this show airs, so it hasn't. It's not on sale yet. It's going to go on sale October twenty eighth. Um, you know, I don't know what the pricing is going to be, but I have to admit that I am, might have to get one. 
That's all. It, I yeah, as as amusing as it is, it's actually yeah. This this thing is extremely practical. These are exactly yeah. why these companies are in business. Is because when you're on set, even you know little inconveniences become huge, huge issues. And so to have a nicely machined piece of gear that does what it's <laughs> supposed to do, even if you are dropping in a, a sort of a strange hybrid camera at this point, uh, you know nothing wrong with it. So what do these things usually cost, Alex? Um, you know, you mean this whole setup? Like the, the Red Rocks thing for the 5D, how would that compare with, like, for instance, what is the one for the HV20 cost? Uh, if you get all of the stuff that they have here, I think it's in, like, the $2,000 range. Um, you know, Well, but that's with the, that's with the um, you know, it's, it's somewhere in that ballpark with, but that's with the spinning glass and the, everything else. Now, the thing to remember is, is, that, is, that you, um, is that you're basically turning an HV20 or HV30 into something that looks better than cameras that cost five or six thousand dollars, and you're doing it for three thousand or thirty five hundred with the camera. So it's it, it actually it's it's very economical, and you get a lot more out of it. Um, you know, this is now, for, do you have to have a physics degree to work this thing, or can a normal guy work? You it? know, it looks complicated when you look at it, but it's actually very very simple. That follow focus on the side just makes it easier for you to do really fine focusing and do it fast, which is what you need when you're doing filmmaking. The matte box on the front, a lot of what we use a matte box for because we don't really like putting a lot of filters in. Um, but a lot of what we use a matte box for, there's little uh, barn doors that go on on either side of those, and what those allow is for you to block out glare, and you know, it, you know, it's a, um, it really allows you to have a lot of control over that, and uh, and so uh, you know, it, it has a lot of those um, you know features there. If if you really wanted to create a movie with a 5D, uh, you know, this would be a great thing. And, and the thing to remember is that the 5D is limited to 12 minutes, you know, per you know, per shot. But when we think about the old fashioned film, you know, it was like seven or eight minutes, uh, you know, per uh, reel. So, so you're still, you're, you know, from a traditional filmmaking point of view, and you're going to get that kind of really nice, uh, you know, contrasty short depth of field, you know, y- y- you could really create something pretty interesting on this. And, and I have to admit that, uh, um, you know, the, uh, when I get one, I'm going to have to, give it a shot we'll have to do sort of video on that or something because i i mean i i'm following most of what you're saying here but i i still got i think most of the audience wants to see how this is worth two grand <laughs> well i don't know how much this one's going to be it could be a lot less than that or it could be more i i don't know what all the components cost so uh i don't i don't it, it could be as little as you know six hundred dollars or twenty five hundred dollars I, I don't know what the number is because they haven't posted it yet so before we make a decision yeah, I mean, about how that, much how much does your wimberly head and, and that whole setup cost scott well, that doesn't matter. That's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that's 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 immaterial. So uh, that's for bird photography. That, that exactly. has I object. I object. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so anyway so so anyway definitely check that out uh, redrockmicro.com it is the craziest looking thing and it makes me just it makes me want to buy a 5d even more so um so anyway it's also by the way being made for the d90 so you can get it for if you have a nikon if you're if you're of the nikon persuasion uh you can get it for the d90 as My well d90 is on the way yeah so you can get it in sky you could be making movies with with your red rock micro setup and your d90 I know okay. you're excited. So anyway, so uh, site of the week coming up here. We got Aaron, this is a suggestion from Aaron. This is CambridgeInColor.com. Uh, Aaron, can you give us a, a little feedback of uh, what the site's all about? Sure, absolutely. It's um, it's a really nice site. I found it a couple of years ago uh, when I was doing a quick search trying to find uh, some nice little online calculators for computing the number of shots I would need, you know, on a panoramic head for a certain you know, certain lens length and so on. So um, 
thing about the site is it, it's really beautifully laid out. I mean, it's wonderfully illustrated. Uh, it's got a lot of great information in it, and it covers a, a huge array of interesting concepts, um, from some very advanced stuff down to just some very simple introductory material about uh, you know about digital photography in general. So, you know, I won't uh, won't go into too much detail here. I just encourage people to visit it. But uh, if you just want a nice overview of all kinds of different techniques, things from uh, you know understanding aperture, uh, understanding image sensors, has lots of little calculators in it for telling you how to compute uh, you know all different types of configurations you might have. Gets into things like understanding diffraction, pixel size, aperture, and airy disks. You know, just all kinds of interesting topics. But Definitely worth a visit. Seems to be updated you know, fairly frequently. There's some new topics that were just added the other day that look kind of exciting. So uh, I just encourage people to visit and learn a little more about the details. It's a great, it's a, it looks like a great site. A lot of great basics, uh, as well as more complex stuff. But uh, definitely worth checking out. Um, also, uh, we have a photo assignment. Our, uh, this is the final week of our monthly assignment, Yellow. Yellow. Scott, how is, how is, the, how is our uh, assignment going? Lots of good pictures being submitted, and we, we want to remind people you can only submit one photograph. One. Make it good. If you, su- if you submit more than one, we have ways <laughs> of finding you, and you are disqualified. So one photo, your best photo, and preferably one that you've taken in response to the assignment, because remember, the main point of this deal is to get you out shooting. That doesn't mean we're going to disqualify your photo if you took it 10 years ago, but if there's a tie. The person who shot the photo most recently will win. And we have had several ties lately. So try to get off your butt. Go out and make a photograph for this contest. That's the point. We want to get you shooting. And then next month we'll have a different theme. So you, you can win if you enter now. Also, we have uh, poll results. Uh, we, this was uh, what percentage of your shots are successful intended compositions or accidental masterpieces. Now, it, it uh, what was interesting is is that uh, 100% one way or the other was a very small percentage. Only 2% said that they had uh, no accidental masterpieces. They planned everything. And the 2% were liars. And uh, that's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, nothing I plan works out. Uh, they're all accidents and I love them, 9.3%. So those are small. But then it was pretty evenly divided among um, you know, 25, 50, or 75% intended versus 75, 50, and 25% accidents. 25% for 25% int- uh, intended, 27% for 50% intended, 36% for 75% intended. And of course, you can see those results uh, on twipphoto.com. Uh, our new poll is how many photos do you take on an average week? Just very curious about how many people are actually taking and how often do you use your camera? So none. Really, I, I want to know how many people who take no photos a week listen to our show. <laughs> I know. I'm very curious. <laughs> I, you know, it's going to be something like 9.6%. You know, they just like listening to about photography. They're like, I, Actually, I'm thinking, I don't own a camera. never take a photo, but what have you got? I was thinking about buying a camera. So, um. I knew a guy once who walked by a camera store. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so. And, and, and before we go on from this, I do want to mention, we need your help on the kind of poll questions you want because I get assailed every week saying, poll question stupid this week. Okay. Right. You send me a brilliant yeah. one then. Yeah, if you have a question, send it to, you send it to Scott. Go up to twipphoto.com and uh, let us know what... Let, let me know what you think would be a, a good poll question. Yeah, that sounds great. And uh, so 1 to 50, 50, 51 to 100, 101 to 200... Or more, or 200, 200, 200 one or more. It's going to be easy for yeah. me. That's the, 
We needed a 2,000 or more category. Uh, it'd be like one, you know. Uh, so uh, <laughs> it's like, well, I keep everything. You know, it'll be, it'll be, like, it'll be the 2,001 is, is the person who, who keeps it on multi, multi-frame, and they just take three of everything. Hey, know? at nine frames a second in that D3, it's pretty easy to get to 200 photos. <laughs> Show off. Show off. Um, so now we have Q&A. Of course, we've, we've spent a lot of time on the news, but uh, we've got some, uh, some good questions that came in, uh, so we had to catch up a little bit. Uh, the first one is... Um, this is from Scott, and not Scott Bourne, but another Scott. Uh, we don't know what his last name is. This is, hey, Twippers, I have a question concerning photo applications on the iPhone. Do you know if it would be technically feasible to create an app that acts like a light meter when you, where you import your ISO and aperture and then use the iPhone's built-in camera in order to calculate the appropriate exposure? I shoot a lot of old analog, a lot with old analog cameras, and I'm a bit put off by pieces by the prices of light meters. Uh, uh, most are m- more expensive than my whole Canon FD system. Uh, thanks, and keep up the good work. Cheers, Scott. So, uh, do you think that do you guys think that's possible? Uh, it, it probably at some point it boils down to how much access Apple gives you to what's really coming off the sensor versus do they have some intermediate API layer that doesn't tell you anything? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, theoretically, yeah, you know, yeah, that's kind of what uh, uh, a regular light meter does, right? You've got a little sensor array, and you can choose to. I mean, the thing that could be cool is you could even potentially have some sort of nice, slick little interface on the uh, touchscreen where you could sort of choose to go from a spot meter to a wide meter, uh, you know, just kind of squeeze, pinch in and out, and it would choose sort of what range you're metering. But, yeah, you know, uh, theoretically it's possible. I don't know how how likely it would be given how much... It seems like Apple kind of locks up that camera in terms of access to it. There's an ambient light sensor in the iPhone, too, but I doubt it's anywhere near as accurate as you need for a meter. Yeah, and I think you'd have to do it through the camera. But I could see something where if you held that camera up to the, about the same scene and tried to, you know, it could give you a, a decent idea of what, uh, you know, a decent, you know, f-stop setting would be or, or shutter speed. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I just, I can't, I can't imagine it working. But, it may, but possibly there'd be enough. I mean, who knows how complicated the sensor is that's in most of these light meters anyway. But uh, uh, not, not that I've used one any time recently <laughs> so yeah. so it uh, it may be possible next question is from um <laughs> hamish carpenter uh and so um the uh the question is i have a rebel uh xt xti and a macbook pro uh only i uh, a macbook pro with only iphoto right now i am looking to upgrade to aperture soon i purchased some new reflector lights to practice portrait photography in my basement studio area I am looking at uh, looking for a program and an accessory if needed to tether my camera to, so my the laptop my laptop can take pictures, and um, and I and I want to be able to see he wants to be able to see uh, immediate feedback on the LCD screen. I am not sure if my camera supports this or uh, do I need to upgrade. Uh, so that's the question uh, from Hamish. Uh, uh, what do you guys? Uh, it sounds like that the XTI is not compatible currently with Aperture. Scott, is that correct? Uh, for the tethering option, that's correct. Right now, Canon does does if you if you have a Canon, there is a there is already um, uh, I can't remember the name of the software right now, but there is already a software that comes with the camera that should allow you to do the tethering and uh, and shooting from there. Uh, is that I believe now, Aaron? You did a little research on this area. Uh, yeah, the the aperture issue is is true. The um, 
I just want to make clear doesn't the, allow the, for. that you can use your Canon XTI images in Aperture. You just can't use Aperture as a tethered solution for that camera. Right. Right. I mean, I have, how many? How many cameras does it does that support? I haven't looked at that lately. Is it a pretty wide range, it's, or is it? it? It is, but it tends to be higher end cameras. Yeah. Okay. And it's not every camera, that's for sure. And frankly, most people that would shoot tethered will be high end. That's just the way it works. Yeah. The tethering is definitely not supported for the XDI and Aperture. Um, and there's a list we'll put in the show notes of the cameras that are supported. The workaround of this I'll mention um, that I've experienced in the past, and, and I can't speak directly to Aperture in this case. Lightroom, for instance, um, will follow a hot folder. Essentially, you can designate a folder that it will monitor, and any time an image lands in it, it immediately imports it into the library. And whether that feature appears quite that way in Aperture, I'm not completely sure. But I do know that you could run Aperture with... Um, with an automator script, for instance, to cause that same functionality to happen. So that's where you fall back on the Canon tool. Um, the little Canon tool that comes with all the Canon cameras will let you tether your camera, control it remotely. It's really quite flexible. And what you do is you set it so that when you shoot at the camera, instead of writing to your card, it writes through to your computer and drops it into the designated folder. So that's where the folder watching kicks in. So again, with Lightroom, there's a feature built in. With Aperture, it's certainly achievable. And well, actually, and, and just to correct it, 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 is, it does work in Leopard, evidently. So uh, it, it, if, you, if you look at support, support.apple.com, they actually list the Digital Rebel as something that is supported, but it does require system 10.5.2 or later. Um, oh, it, they got a conflict on their web or other, and on another web page then because it says it isn't, and that must be from a pre-Leopard page. Right, yeah. So we were looking at, as we were doing the research, I just kind of popped it up, but if, if uh, I just, you know, it, it, it looks like uh, Aperture 10.5.2 or later will support uh, almost everything. Almost every SLR that Canon makes, uh, but most of those are not supported in uh, Tiger in ten point four point eleven uh, or earlier. This, I thought about the same thing as far as whether that document was out of date. But when I checked last night, um, the latest update on that knowledge base document is October twenty second. Uh, the one that I'm looking at is is October twenty second. Yep. So it's it's, it's, it's not. So the, the errors may be. <laughs> we're confused. We're confused. So well, maybe somebody who listens to this show from Apple. We'll we let us know. Are, yeah, we'll let, let us know. know. We'll we'll answer the question better. But I can say that you can make this work with any camera using Automator. Right. How does that work? Well, if you go to you know our friends Automator.us site, um, we we you know Sal's site, you can find a whole bunch of automator actions for Aperture. And way back in the day, before, you know, this was a, a built-in feature of Aperture, Joe Shore and his team put together, I think, an automator action and stuck it up there. And I think it's still there. So you were able to tether sort of, not, you know, not, not the way you think in a, a pure tethering environment, but you could get images from the camera to your computer directly using this automator action. So go look that up if it's a big issue for you. Does the tethering in Aperture actually give you control over the functionality of the camera? Or is it strictly just when the shot comes in, it, it inserts it into Aperture? I have never actually done it, Aaron, so I don't know. Yeah, that's what I'm not sure about. Now, I just wonder I, I mean, whether that has to do with the level of support for tethering. Because, again, in Lightroom, that, I'm not going to have control of the camera in Lightroom, right. but I do from the Canon app. Most people that tether tend to be product shooters, or food shooters, you know, some sort of serious studio shoot environment. And, you know, that's a small portion of our audience. But I don't do that kind of work anymore, so I haven't had to tether in eons. The last time I tethered was on the very first Foveon chip. 
mm-hmm. and it was attached to the one megapixel prototype camera that came on like two giant carts of gear attached to big boxes. <laughs> <laughs> they set it up in my studio and we made a one megapixel picture and they said, you can buy this, you know, it's only $55,000. I said, no thanks. Well, I almost always tether when I shoot in the studio and I have to say I love it. Because, I mean, you've got instant feedback. You know, the shots that you may misjudge on the back of your camera as not being, you know, as being in focus or quite right. You know, you've got all that visibility right there with raw corrections applied and everything. So, it's well worth doing if you've got the software to do it. I'm, all, I'm all oftentimes surprised at how little software is out there that really does good camera control. Especially for the Canon, given that the Canon is a pretty open SDK. And I, I'm told now that the Nikon also has... Uh, a fairly open SDK is that you know, it just seems like if I'm shooting in a studio, I wouldn't, if it was me, you know, of course I wouldn't want to <laughs> touch the camera. I would just want to sit behind a computer with a big view and all the stuff and just be able to control the camera from the computer. You know, I, I know that I'm probably a little odd that way, um, but we're used to kind of running our cameras that way from, uh, from a video environment. And, um, and it just seems like, you know, but when you go out there and look, look for actually really, really high end, you know, control software, uh, some of the camera manufacturers make something that's fairly basic, but it would be really nice to have, you know, take full advantage of those SDKs. So if someone's developing that, they should let us know so we can help them promote the it. program I didn't name earlier, the Canon Utility is called the EOS Utility, I believe. And mm-hmm. it comes with most of the Canon SLRs, if not all of them. And it does have pretty full control. I mean, you're, you can control aperture. Virtually every setting of the camera that you would do on the camera's own menus, you can do remotely from software that way. Yeah, my thing is mostly multi. You know, what I really want is to be able to shoot uh, HDRs, you know, and really be able to define uh, multiple exposures over that are fired very quickly. I'll mention too that it's good if you want to do uh, long-term um, uh, multiple exposures, uh, time-lapse photography as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're gonna we have a couple more questions that we're gonna answer, but before that, we have to talk about uh, our favorite drive system, Drobo. And uh, is everyone's Drobo? Ron, is your Drobo up to speed now? I am. I am totally one hundred percent feeling Drooby now. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I went and I had a couple of external drives and I ripped them apart. I ripped three of them apart. Unfortunately, one of them had a ATA connector and not a SATA connector, and it was the one that I really had to rip apart to get to it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that doesn't work. But fortunately, the two larger ones were uh, SATA connectors that were totally appropriate, and I popped them in, and it went and did its magic. And so you just, you just, took, just, a, you just took a hodgepodge of old drives and shoved them in there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, mean, I probably have six old, you know, external drives laying around, and I was just like, you know, they were they were kind of useless. So you know, they're not that expensive anymore. You know, you can really, yeah, you know, can really I, go out I, and I, buy them. Well, I've seen the um, the uh, Western Digital Green versions, which run very cool and quiet, and so I want to get one of those one terabyte or a couple of those one terabytes. And I've seen them on sale for as low as like a hundred bucks. Yeah, and they're not on sale right now, so I'm just kind of waiting for the next sale to come through. I had, I had enough space with the ones I grabbed to back up everything i needed yeah you now. think so and then suddenly you feel yeah, you, the, the the feeling of droopiness becomes addictive and then, then <laughs> and then and then you just want to put everything on there like nothing is really droopy until it's on the drobo and 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 yeah. so that's the problem with me is that i filled it up you know it's, i started thinking i'm gonna have all this space forever and the next thing i knew i would it was full so it was yep. uh, very traumatic for me so uh but uh, then i filled then i put bigger drives in and so i'm now scott you're, you're really on the 1.5 terabyte drive systems right no, I, I've ordered them, but okay. I presently am using all of the one terabyte Western Digital Green drives and right. all 
all four of my drobos and they've performed quite well yeah i started with 500s and then and then the next all the drobos after the first one uh, had one terabyte drives in them just because it was just i knew i was going to want to put a bunch of stuff on there and uh i kind of decided to wait to get too far into the 1.5 drives just to make sure that they get them all sorted out because you know the bigger those drives get the more likely they are to fail yep yeah, but which matters less with a Drobo than it does with other other things. But of course, you wouldn't want two of them to fail. But you can have one of the drives uh, actually fail um, on the uh, uh, you know when you're working on it. So and that's the of course that's what makes you feel droopy. Now people can also, get. Go ahead. We should mention real quick the Drobo developers community, Alex. Yes. So this was announced this week. So uh, yeah. So now you know the thing that people don't realize there's a little processor in the Drobo that's actually doing all of the. Uh, uh, all this work, making it easy for you to keep everything safe. And uh, and now they have a developer community. They've opened that up so people can develop software. Now, the one that, you know, uh, you know, you can take a lot of stuff that used to be difficult, like R-Sync and, and a lot of other, um, you know, uh, media server type stuff for iTunes. Those types of things can be, are, are now being built. And if you go to dro- uh, data robotics, is it data robotics.us? Is that right? Um, um, or just data robotics. Robot dot com right uh, or drobo.com is the simpler way yeah drobo.com uh you can you can see the uh you can see the new developer community and some of the new uh stuff that's out there it is uh, it's pretty iTunes exciting compatible music server alex yes i know did I'm you gonna, see that i did there's I also just... there's also not that you would ever engage in such activity but there is a BitTorrent download client yeah i would never do that i know <laughs> but you know, the, the, there's a there's a cool thing called Time Machine Tamer, which lets Mac users control how much disk space the Time Machine can use, because otherwise, Time Machine will eat every bit of disk space it can find. So there, there there's cool stuff going on there, and and they're working with developers to take advantage. Of it. I hear this all the time. I don't want to pay five hundred dollars for a container that just holds disk drives. You're not. You're paying for a computer, my friend, because yeah. there is a computer in there, and this is the proof of it. They've got all these cool things coming and they want more so be sure well, to I mean, visit the, that, rem- that part of the site remote access of your drobo and drobo share uh from a web browser or mobile device like an iphone you know i mean that's the kind of stuff you always- yeah that's that's the one that jumped out at me that sounded very, very interesting yeah so it's there's a lot of stuff uh coming with drobo share so i mean with uh, drobo apps and so um definitely something to check out and you can get uh 25 percent 25 dollars not percent 25 dollars off the purchase of a uh either the uh the usb or the firewire and where where do they go scott for that uh, just simply go to drobo.com slash twip TWIP. It's a special deal for our listeners. And I can't tell you how long there'll be USB drives left. They're, they're, they're running out of those. So yeah. if you want the cheaper one, which is, by the way, all you need if you want to do something like an aperture you know, vault backup or something like that, the, then you can save a, you know, save a significant amount of money. Uh, but they are running out of those. So that's drobo.com slash twip. It's 25 bucks off and uh, it's worth it if you, if you want a drobo. You save 25 bucks. The uh, so um, definitely check that out and uh, you know make sure that you're feeling droopy. Uh, curious. Uh, here's another uh, question from Alan uh, Gabrielli. He said uh, you've talked uh, several times about using a 50 millimeter lens as a preferred walk around lens. I have a Nikon D70 and uh, maybe buying a D300. Nikon does not make a 50 millimeter DX series lens. If I buy a 50 1.4, will it behave like a 70 millimeter on my camera? If I buy a 35 millimeter 1.2, it will act like a 50, um, but it'll be slower. Uh, can you advise on the trade-offs between the two choices and perhaps a recommendation? 
Wow, that question kind of hurt my brain. <laughs> I think a lot of this has to do with the difference between the APS uh, sensor or a 35 millimeter um, and how it's going to, uh, you know, he's trying yeah, to make and whether a decision. Or not, you know, I mean, 50, 50 isn't magic in terms of a, you know, in terms of a focal length, I don't think. I mean, it, it's sort of approximately what your human eye tends to see in terms of field of view, but, uh, you know, I don't think there's any any hard and fast rule. It kind of depends on your shooting style. If you, you know, if you want something that's a little bit longer, you want something that's a little bit wider. For me, I would probably prefer a slightly wider lens as a, as a walk around a lot of the time. But, you know, it's uh, the... the being able to get that 1.4 aperture is sort of the key point. So I'd probably still, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt to have a, a nice, fast lens in your kit, whether you've got a crop sensor camera or not. My walk around lens is actually an eight millimeter Sigma. <laughs> 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 that way, I, when I take pictures, I take pictures of everything all at the same time. No, the uh, I think that you know the I. I'm a big fan of like if when I say a walk around lens, uh, talking about a 50 millimeter, uh, and it is just a 50 millimeter. Uh, you know, uh, it's not a uh, you know any kind of digital 50 millimeter. It's just a real, real 50 millimeter, uh, which is an effective. Uh, I think it's actually uh, I want to say 80. It's is it, It's not really a 70, right? Um, it'd be closer well, to it. It depends on what camera you put it on. So, on the the Nikon's are 1.5 crop factors. Oh, the right. Canons are 1.6s. So, do the math. I don't know what it comes out to exactly. Right. So, I think it's about an 80 millimeter. And I take a lot of pictures of people. You know, that's what I um, when I'm out and about. It's mostly of of, uh, of my son, uh, but also just other people or, or things that we're doing. And I like that that length um as well as the really short depth of field i think everything looks really nice that way so that tends to be my uh you know my uh tendency is is to go through that because that's that's the kind of stuff i'm taking when i take behind the scenes photos i do take this crazy fisheye Uh, and then my day-to-day kind of like oh i just want to have something to take snapshots with is just you know it's really just the lens that came with the camera um, you know, for me, uh, a lot of times I'm traveling, I just don't want to take expensive lenses out. So, uh, the more expensive stuff is kept for when I'm actually doing work. How about you, Scott? My walk around lens is the Sigma three to 800 F5. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it, walk around they don't really far, call that. Lo- they, they don't call it really walk around. They call it lug, I, lug I around. Cart the way, around. I walk all the way from the back of the car to the parking lot with that thing on he walks around you know, the car. And he's got a donkey that, that he puts it on when he gets out of the car and it's like and it's you know no, I, I, I use the beautiful Nikkor 24 to 70 f2.8 That's a beautiful beautiful camera beautiful, I mean, beautiful uh, lens On a full frame sensor it's a real 24 to 70 it gives me yeah. a nice focal range and um, I will sometimes use the 14 to 24 f2.8 instead if I know I'm going to walk around and just do wide stuff, because that's another cool lens, but the, the 24 to 70. But frankly, most of my photography, you look at my aperture library, 85% of my stuff is at 500 millimeters and above. Fantastic. So we, uh, the, that is the end of our, our question and answer segment. Uh, we've got a couple things coming up next week. Uh, we're hopefully going to get a, some feedback from Steve and or Fred uh, about uh, a photo plus the photo plus show uh, next week, so we're going to be talking about that, and um, uh, and then between weeks, I don't think we're going to post any videos, but we are working on some. I know Scott's working on some. I know I am. I'm well, just I posted to get one done. today. I posted one on how the gimbal head works for the three to eight hundred. 
So definitely check and, that out. And that's up. So go up to uh, twipphoto.com to check that out. And by the time you hear this show, it'll be a few days post down. So just right, remember that. Right. And uh, so definitely check that out. And uh, I know uh, we've gotten some requests on more. I, I still have to get around to showing my bag. So yeah, everybody I, wants to see your well, bag. Well, I got man. a new bag and I had to settle in. So here's the problem was is that, is that I had a way that I did it with my old bag, but then I got a new bag and, and, t- and it wasn't really proper to What's show your new it. Bag? I got, What's your new you know, bag? I have the, well, I have the D67, the D467 from uh, the Kata bag, but it takes me, it takes me a little bit of time to kind of settle into what I actually am going to use it for, you know? And so, so I, um, uh, and I, it is definitely my favorite bag so far. And so I'm going to, I'm going to tease here because I'm getting a new bag from a new photo bag company that doesn't exist as of today, but will as of this week. Mm-hmm. They're, so, they're, de- they're debuting a new bag and they're letting me have one of the first ones before they even ship. And I, then they'll be going live next week with the announcement of their new photo bag. It's made by a well-known photographer for photographers. And I, we're going to show a video of that probably pretty soon. I, I, I can't wait to see it. It's a bag teaser. And by the way, <laughs> I will say this bag is specifically engineered for people who travel. And really? Pat- particularly for people who might travel to a sub-Saharan continent. Oh, I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm now I'm, uh, I'm very fascinated with it. Is, I just want to make sure it's rough, rugged canvas on the outside, and I'll be set. I'll let you take a look at it. Okay, excellent. Um, we have a tip of the week, and another tip of the week that was uh, submitted by a listener. This is from Ron Reed, and um, and he said, I think this is really cool, a fellow named... Phil Harvey has a Perl script that will scan all of your photos and export the EXIF data to a CSV file. Now, the question, of course, is why would you care? Um, If you are on a limited budget and want to upgrade your lenses but aren't sure what focal length you normally shoot, his script can tell you. Um, So he thinks it's a great tip. and It sounds actually really – I just find – fascinating that someone would write a Perl script that would export all the EXIF data. Now, all that EXIF data, of course, is sitting, it's contained in your images. So what has to happen is, is that the, um, you know, it just has to look in the right place there to pull the data out. Ron, can you uh, extrapolate a little on this? Uh, well, I think you can actually do this inside of uh, Aperture and Lightroom, too, in the sense that you can sort of sort your stuff and see, uh, you know, see sort of, sort of by lens length that you shot with and sort of get a rough idea of that, too. But if you really want to go the full geek route and you know, build a uh, Excel spreadsheet where you can run regression testing against what you're shooting, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and for and, those of you that don't know what Ron just said, send me an email. We'll have an interpreter <laughs> for you. <laughs> well, so the, the big thing is, is that there's just a lot of this information that's in there, and it, it is useful to be able to get it out of – uh, the photos for a variety of reasons, and uh, there are you know there are ways of doing it within Automator. There's ways that, and, and by the way, if you're a photographer and you don't know about Automator.us, this is just another tip here. Uh, that's um, you know Sal Segoyan's, uh, uh, uh website about uh, Automator. You know there are so many things you can do with your photos uh, with Automator, and this is just another way to automate. Uh, a lot of those processes. So uh, definitely, uh, definitely check that out if if that automation sounds interesting to you. And thank you very much to Ron Reed for sending that tip in. Uh, Ron, where can people find you? Ron Brinkman, where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me on the uh, digitalcomposting.com website for my blog or on the Twitters, Ron Brinkman. And Scott. Two ends. Two ends. Two ends. 
Uh, I'm, of course, also on the Twitter at uh, Scott Bourne, all one word, S-C-O-T-T-B-O-U-R-N-E, of course. And then every single day I'm posting at twipphoto.com. And then also over at f64.com where we're hosting the Aperture Nature Photography Workshop Contest where you get a chance to uh, come on a national park trip with me and a bunch of pros and win a bunch of prizes and there's no entry fee and it's really cool. Aaron, where can people find your stuff? Uh, you could find me on my blog at halfpress.com. Do you, do you have some of the cool stuff Darius. that you shot last week? Uh, yeah, I do have... Um, Are we allowed to talk about weeks, that? About a couple of shoots. Well, I uh, last Friday, uh, while y'all were recording the show, I was about an hour away from here uh, photographing an Obama rally for the Democratic Party of Virginia. So uh, that was a ton of fun. Is that and some of that stuff's up there? Last, last yeah, week, we almost blog. said that we're off to shoot Obama. And yeah. like, oh, <laughs> I have to be so careful about the phrasing when I'm, you know, when I'm referring to yeah. yeah, that's that that's that's one I didn't think of, Ron. That's a good one. You did some really good work there. And a lot of people don't understand that Aaron is a photographer, and he's, you know, he's not just a geek who helps us out. He's a photographer, and he doesn't get the credit on the show he should at some times. But uh, we, you ought to go visit his his website and look at his images. They're good halfpress.com so definitely i love the name of the website too thank you yeah so um so definitely check that out and uh uh until next week where can we find you alex oh i'm i'm at i'm just at the twitter alex Lindsay, uh all one word uh with an a uh, that's not pretty much all i have to say you know people can find me i'm on no, the twitter. no double letters anywhere there's no double letters it's just a pretty straightforward alex Lindsay, all one word with an a People always search for me with an E, and there's no E in my in my last name. Just in case you're wondering, I um, thought you said Alex starting with an E. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alex. Uh, you know that's uh, for the for yeah. Anyway, so uh, until next week, you can put that lens cap right back on. <laughs> <laughs>